the glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory lane, it's time to start the show. The Gory Days, 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 the a cosmic balancing of the scales for not only Biden to win, but also for a vaccine to show up. And what a more appropriate movie to be talking about a vaccine for a virus than this. I am legend from 2007. I didn't even pick this movie. My guest picked this movie. And it's so serendipitous that the timing worked out this way. Uh, In fact, you know me, Kyle Leone, your host. I'm here talking about horror movies all the time. But starting as of last week, I'm back to guests. So why don't I introduce today's She's a friend of the podcast now, but it's her first time appearing on The Gory Days and ever on podcasts, right? Is today your first podcast? It is my podcast debut to the world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's awesome. I'm flattered that The Gory Days could be your uh, maiden voyage. She is based in L.A. at uh, a little company called Little Monster Pictures, where she's the lead producer and co-owner. Please welcome for the first time to The Gory Days, Jen Birdling. Hello. Hi, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. So, I mean, Little Monster Pictures, that should be perfect for here on the gory days. But from uh, private conversations off mic, I understand that of the two owners of Little Monster Pictures, you're not so much of a horror fan. Not so much. Little Monster Pictures gets its name from uh, our founder, my co-producer, Kathy Karitsis, uh, you know, who is the little monster herself. Uh, she was given that nickname and it is apt because she is the biggest horror fan I know. Uh, I'm quite the opposite, as you know, um, you know, and you so graciously gave me uh, a list of possible <laughs> possible movies to pick from that all were within my range of comfortability to watch. So I appreciate that. No nightmares yet. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. When I was putting that list together, I was going through and I was thinking, okay, um, sci-fi thrillers, 2006, 2007, 2008, and just going through and thinking like, okay, yeah, that was a movie that there aren't any jump scares necessarily, but it's it's not like a family movie. I wouldn't take the kids to see these. Um, and I, Yeah, I can't remember the list, but, um, and I, I talked with Kathy. She's delightful. I can't wait to have her on the show too. Absolutely. Yeah. She, uh, I, after you and I sort of downloaded originally and, and I started talking about Kathy, I thought, oh my gosh, she's a way better option for a guest than I am. <laughs> um, but the best option of all is to have us both on. So then what is your relationship to horror then? Or uh, I guess if it's not your genre, what is the genre you prefer to uh, dabble in? I mean, I grew up and still do, I think, avoid horror at all costs. And it's not something uh, I'm happy with. It's just who I am as a person. Um, You know, these things get into my head as they try to do, as they're built to do. And and I just can't really get them out. Um, Yeah, which is actually disappointing because I think now horror is having such a moment, uh, you know, with its elevated films like... The Witch, It Follows, The Babadook, Hereditary, Midsommar, you know, these are all movies that I'm devastated I can't watch because I think they're amazing films. Um, But what I do is I'm an avid horror movie 
plot reader through like Wikipedia. And there is like, this is a, a group of people who kind of get their fill of horror movies. And, and I feel like I'm not being left out of, of, you know, the zeitgeist of horror that I can still, I know everything that happens in all of those movies. And it's as if I watched it, but I actually haven't. That is exactly the same thing I would do. Like I was never a, a super like horror person as a kid growing up. I was terrified of that stuff. And I've talked about how, uh, Chucky in particular was the one that scared me so much, but I would like kind of curb that fear by telling myself if I could understand them, then they wouldn't be as scary. So I would dive into like the lore of Freddy Krueger without seeing the movies on Wikipedia or whatever the equivalent was back then and reading the synopses for it. Cause that's essentially like the millennial version of watching it, you know, with the pillow in front of you. It's like, you get the idea, so you can talk about it with friends. You just didn't suffer. Yeah, you know, and Little Monster Pictures, it's still in its infancy as a company. Um, but I'm really excited for the day that, you know, we get to develop and actually produce a horror movie because I haven't yet to be behind the scenes on a horror movie. And I'm wondering how, just how terrified I'll be, you know, or if seeing it being, I mean, I work in film. I know how these things are made. I can imagine the crews behind the scenes. I can imagine the DP behind the camera. Uh, you know, but they're done so well that I just, I can't, I don't have that separation yet. So I wonder if I'm on act, actually on a set, if it'll help me, uh, uh, yeah, cross that line. Well, it's funny. You meant you rattled off some movies and I think those were all, uh, either a 24 or Blumhouse movies. And you're right. There's been like this renaissance of horror movies, whereas like eighties movies that I usually cover were kind of like a place for no names to get their start. Whereas it's completely opposite now. Now you'll see John Krasinski and Emily Blunt in a horror movie. And you see these big, big names helming horror films. Uh, which, like, if you told um, Zach Galligan from Gremlins that uh, horror movies were going to star uh, the big names in the future, I don't think he would have believed you. So it's, it's, it's funny that it's come around like that. But I want to know about Little Monster Pictures. So uh, if a horror movie were to cross your path, it wouldn't come from you. How would that work? Would that be an outside person bringing in a, a half-baked idea? Totally. I mean, basically what we do is, you know, we're a, a creative hub of people. Uh, Kathy and I have, you know, years and years in the industry as, uh, you know, producers, associate producers in development, on set, production coordinating, production management. Uh, so between the two of us, you know, there's really nothing that we haven't done. And our goal is just to create an environment where, you know, writers, actors, directors, friends can come to us with uh, you know, anything as small as an idea or anything as big as a fully fleshed out script. And we can kind of pull from our team, you know, this guy would be great for this, this person for this, we can, you know, do a breakdown, see what the budget is, help with funding. So it's really just a creative incubator where people can come and, and yeah, we haven't seen a horror script yet, but we'd love to. So well, send them I'll in. I think that's awesome. Cause like when I moved here, uh, back in 2017, that's, that was the thing that I thought I would be able to find easily. I thought, oh, when I move to L.A., I'll be able to find collaborators. And there will just be people at coffee shops waiting for me to make eye contact with them so that we could start a conversation. And, you know, three years here, it's harder than it looks finding collaborators. It's, it's one thing to have an idea in your head. But if you don't have, like, the means or the friends to execute that idea yourself, you're either... I don't know. I, I can't draw, so I can't even animate. So the idea of like having a group like Little Monster Pictures to support 
uh, either, like you say, a uh, um, half-baked idea or a fully-fledged, like, script. That sounds really, really, like, not just supportive, but validating, too. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I see it as, uh, you know, with every sort of like generation of people making movies in Hollywood, you know, there was like the Adam Sandler and his team. And, you know, like these guys all came up, you know, guys and girls, women, men, they all came up together. And then you hear later on that, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch lived with Eddie Redmayne in a tiny flat, you know, and they were both going out on auditions when nobody knew who they were. And so I kind of see it like that, you know, people, you know, we work with, you know, first time camera operators or, you know, folks who just need to kind of get on set and, and start, uh, start working on their craft a little bit more. So I see that as the, as the new group. And, and then, you know, hopefully we'll be running studios and, and selling scripts uh, all together in 10 years. That's exactly it. It's so it's grassroots. It's not waiting for like the job that opens up and then submitting your portfolio or something. It's just doing it with who you have starting now and is that kind of how disadvantage came? Was that something that like the group uh, kind of evolved together or did someone bring that in? Did, uh, I guess we should introduce the idea of what disadvantage is. Sorry. So um, Little Monster Pictures, if you check out the website on the episode description of uh, the episode you're listening to right now, you can check out this. Uh, I'm sorry. Is it 10 episodes? 10 episodes of what is The Office meets Dungeons and Dragons. It's called Disadvantage. And I was so impressed and frankly, just between you and me and all the listeners, very inspired by like how, and I mean this in the nicest way, but like accessible it looked. Like it really inspired me and made me think like, oh, I could do something like this with my friends or even just my fiance if I forced him. <laughs> Absolutely. It's uh, Disadvantage started with uh, Kathy and her writing partner. Um, and basically, they had the script. He's very, very involved in the D&D world. You know, he plays it um, uh, consistently. He has a quite a big following on Twitch. Um, and so they had this thing. And I had just moved back to LA after having been in LA for a bit, moving back to Canada, finally relocated here permanently. Kathy and I reconnected um, after going to UCLA together for a little bit. And she basically said, I have this thing going on and, and I was looking for productions to work on and just wanted to expand my network. And, and so I came on as a co-producer with her and, and it essentially, you know, blew up my world in terms of introducing me to just some of the most pleasant, creative, fun, funny people that I've met, everyone from, you know, our camera operator, our, our gaffer, costume designer, the actors, we essentially filmed it over 16 Friday and Saturday nights uh, between wow. 4 p.m. and 4 a.m. in Kathy's apartment, um, okay. you know, in the dead of the summer. So if you can imagine, like, no AC because of sound, everyone's running around. It's the middle of the night. And it's even now it sounds crazy how we did it. You know, we all gave up our summer, essentially, to do this thing. Um, but I, you know, I, I truly love it. And and when we got to rent out a small theater and kind of run through the whole screening um, for cast and crew and, and friends of the production, uh, it was a nice moment. And yeah, it's been kind of our launching pad for The Little Monster. Yeah, it's one of the most impressive things I've seen come, like, from uh, any of, like, my circle, honestly, like... I, I wanted to say that much, but I don't know how much, how interesting this question will be to anybody, but like just pulling the curtain back a little bit. So co-producing something like disadvantage, are you in charge of like the budget or the casting 
Or is it better a question to ask what aren't you in charge of? I mean, essentially, you know, the word producer can, uh, you know, the actual, the task that a producer takes on can escape a lot of people in terms of, well, what do you actually do? And I guess... The, the, <laughs> I don't mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, the short answer is it depends on the budget. You know, yeah. so if it's a big budget thing, a pr- like the bigger the budget, the less the producer is really going to be doing. Uh, but there's also all kinds of co- producers. There's associate producers, co-producers, executive producers, you know, and all those things mean different things depending. Some of it just means it's a name. Some of it means it's, a, you know, somebody is giving some money to it. Um, in the case of, you know, a short uh, web series, uh, low budget short web series that Kathy and I did together, it's, yeah, we're doing everything. Um, you know, we didn't have... PAs, production coordinators, production managers. So we were figuring out the budget, managing the funding, but also making sure everyone was fed and, you know, safe and had, uh, you know, had bottles of water at their disposal. Um, sure. And especially in like COVID times now, I imagine that job of a producer is a little, a little more involved. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, we are happy to provide COVID compliance officers on all of our shoots, you know, so that job really stays with that person. And and it's something that they should only be doing that one job. Um, you know, but as producers, we still need to have oversight and making sure that everyone feels safe and that, and that that person is, is safe and happy too. Uh, but Kathy and I have a really great kind of back and forth. Um, you know, there's no set, you take care of this, I'll take care of this. It really just depends what either of us have going on in our lives that week, that month, uh, you know, we often work on script breakdowns and budget simultaneously. Um, yeah, so it's a great give and take. And I think that's really the the mark of a good producing partnership. I, I think the results speak for themselves. And that is that kind of the same relationship that's carrying into this new project off limits? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Off limits. Um, is uh, under the Little Monster umbrella. So it's our production company, but actually Kathy carried that one on her own. So she's the the sole producer. Uh, I came onto that one as the COVID compliance officer because we needed it. I thought it would be a great experience and I'm really happy I was able to do that job because now I know what I'm asking other people to do when you yeah. hire them. And, and I think that's important. Um, but one of the actresses from Disadvantage actually directed Off Limits, and it was her first time directing anything. We had an all-female crew uh, for Above the Line uh, crew, so our sound, our DP, um, writer, and director, and lead actress were all female, which was awesome. Um, and that's that not great. anything away from RAC, uh, you know, and our gaffer, who were, who were male, but it was, it's just nice to fill out the crew as much as we can with fellow women in the industry. That is really great. And, you know, at the risk of mansplaining it, would you like to give a little bit of a description of what Off Limits exactly is? Yeah, it's uh, it's a short film that explores the perils of women uh, using ride sharing programs, whether it's it's Lyft or Uber. In our film, they're called Rides with a Z um, for legal purposes. But you know, if you really look into, I mean, I used to take Ubers all the time, not so much anymore. But I honestly wouldn't hesitate to get an Uber. I didn't ever particularly feel unsafe, but after delving into the script and this content, seeing it be shot and looking at the resources that Kathy um, was sharing about people raising safety issues, it reminds you that, you know, oh yeah, there was that creepy time that that guy asked me if I had a boyfriend and, but it's just something that we've become accustomed to. And it doesn't even register in your mind at the moment as like, Ooh, something's unsafe. Um, so I think we've all just become a little bit 
too complacent. And uh, yeah, once we get back into Ubers and, and Lyfts, I'll probably be a little bit more, uh, what's the word, a little bit more assertive with my personal boundaries. Yeah, it's it's a it's a situation that unfortunately is a horror movie, but in real life. And now you've kind of had this real world horrible thing kind of land in a place that I think is a great vehicle for for because it's it's a Kickstarter campaign, correct? Yeah, it was a very successful Kickstarter campaign. Um, you know, the movie itself uh, is a thriller, and in it, you know, there is uh, sort of a uh, an Uber or a Lyft killer on the loose. So, you know, it definitely goes into these uh, more fantastical uh, areas. But the way we shot it was essentially in a few apartments um, and in a lot of cars. So those car setups weren't easy. We had this great car rig um, where we had the camera on the outside of the car facing into the window. So we're driving around Burbank, you know, with this extremely expensive camera and in you know whose couple of us are in the follow car and every time we take a turn everyone co- collectively holds their breath hoping that it's going to stay put but we had a great camera team so it did and and it was great oh that's awesome i just i was talking with kathy about it and i think i remember her briefly mentioning that like uber was kind of burying the cases of these male drivers taking advantage of the fact that they have these people in their cars completely at their mer- like uh, driving 60 miles an hour and it's this and and there's no oversight yeah and especially when a lot of the you know i mean i know uber uh, i know i use uber most of the time when i'm drinking and i don't want to be driving so it's a, it's a measure where you're trying to be the safest you can be and simultaneously you're putting yourself at risk by getting into a stranger's car you know when you uh, are most under the influence. Yeah, and when you'd hope that companies like Lyft and Uber would take it as an opportunity to insert more regulations and get more oversight over their drivers, instead they're pumping millions of dollars into giving us five ads per YouTube video telling us to take away their rights, saying, I'm a driver like me, and I want to be treated like crap. And that passed. Very bad business for Uber and Lyft. Yeah, seriously. Um, well, I, I sincerely hope. Uh, what's the plan? I mean, uh, when that gets out, is that going to be like shopped around at festivals and stuff? Yeah, I think our, fr- you know, with any short film, um, you know, we're looking at sometime in 2021. Uh, I mean, we're almost there. So that's not too far away. But we'll do the <laughs> yeah, we'll do the festival route and, and see if we can gain some interest there. And, um, you know, and then maybe turn it into a feature. Cool. Well, that's exciting. Why don't we move into uh, the movie that we picked today? So uh, of the list that I gave you, what made you gravitate toward I Am Legend specifically? You know, the only other one that I was considering was Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, I love that movie and I've seen it so many times. I honestly thought I Am Legend would just be more fun to talk about. You know, it's a Will Smith movie. It's got... Uh, you know, zombies or vampires or these creatures, you know, it has the dot, like, it's just, you know, it. Yeah, Pan's Labyrinth is a, oh, sorry, it's a, No, it's, I was going to say, you know, it's got the city of New York, you know, sort of as its own thing, but, and yeah, Pan's Labyrinth is, it's, uh, it's very complex. And, and very much more depressing. I mean, this movie has its own share of depressing scenes, but that whole movie, all of Pan's Labyrinth is just one long slide down. <laughs> yes, exactly, I know. And then, 
And also, I, I'm not Spanish, and I couldn't really speak toward the Spanish occupation or fascist regime then. So I think we made the right choice. <laughs> okay, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll leave you to do that with someone who understands <laughs> that part of history much better than I do. I think, yeah, me too. Um, so why don't I uh, quickly explain how this movie got made. So uh, it's actually based on a book way back in... Um, 1957, producer Anthony Hines bought the rights to the Richard Matheson novel I Am Legend for Hammer Hammer Film Productions, which ultimately resulted in the Vincent Price-led The Last Man on Earth in 1964. So that was the first film version of I Am Legend. The second one, which I've seen, is Omega Man, the Omega Man starring Charlton Heston in 1971, which is way different from this movie. I remember when I Am Legend, like the ads started coming around, my dad was excited by it. He was like, oh, you should watch the original. And so he sat me down, we watched Omega Man. And then this movie came out and it was not the same. It was, there was, there was way less conversation between the vampires and the, the doctor. Really? Yeah, they in um in the Omega Man, the vampires are pretty intelligent and they're basically just like saying, "May we kill you, please?" And Charleston Heston's like, "No, not yet." And he's like, "All right, we're going to come out every night and we'll whittle you down, so see you tomorrow." <laughs> um so then in 1995, WB started developing another adaptation with Ridley Scott, which would have starred Arnold Arnold Schwarzenegger, but the budget got too high, so that was canceled. And then finally, in 2004, producer Akiva Goldsman picked up on the rising popularity of sci-fi horrors like Ghosts of Mars and most notably 28 Days Later and was enamored with the idea of a city void of people and so started developing an outline for I Am Legend, which is the one that we see now. So filming began in September of 2006 on location in New York which was extremely controversial resulting in uh, most famously a 5 million dollar scene on the Brooklyn Bridge <laughs> which is so stupid in retrospect the way that scene is shot it could have very easily have just been CGI but completely this guy yeah no this guy um writer dir- or uh, director Francis Lawrence who was a music video director until Constantine in 2005, and is suddenly like, no, we need the Brooklyn Bridge to explode. <laughs> so then the movie finally is released on December, uh, December 14th, 2007 at the box office, and it hits the top in its first opening weekend, which is bizarre for a non-Christmas movie to open number one at the box office in December. And so I remember seeing this movie in theaters. Did you have the honor <laughs> I don't remember where I saw it. I don't think it was in theaters. I think I saw it at home. Um, but I remember I remember it, you know, scaring me, but not too much. You know, it was that perfect combination of, you know, apocalyptic, uh, you know, uh, solitary man trying to, you know, save everyone um, and a few little jump scares here and there. I'm trying to remember what Will Smith was doing leading up to this. Cause I remember that being a huge draw for me it was like, Oh look, it's Will Smith. I love Will Smith. And he was so, it was, I mean, we're going to get into it, but it is like a tour de force. It's kind of like his castaway for a lot of the movie. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. And cat, you know, cat, I think anybody who sees this is going to make that connection between, uh, I am legend and castaway just given, you know, the first 20 minutes of the movie. Um, but how yeah. castaway had come out how many years before this? I think it came out in 2000. So a good six or seven years. So why don't we get into my first segment, which is where I 
sum up what happened in the movie for anyone who hasn't seen it. And if you haven't seen it, shame on you, but it's very old. So uh, this first segment, which is, what the hell just happened? So in 2009, scientists, played by Emma Thompson, developed a cure for cancer. And it turned lethal somehow. Oops, and infected the world and killed 90% of the population. And the survivors were either immune or survive as mutated vampires that the movie never directly or only once directly refers to as dark seekers. So that's what we're going to call the monsters. So Will Smith, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Neville, played by Will Smith, was, I guess, responsible at some point for containing the outbreak and failed and now lives in an abandoned, overgrown New York with his pet German shepherd, Sam, Samantha, spoiler alert, uh, for three years trying to develop a cure for the bad cure. And so despondent after having to kill Samantha one day after she's infected while defending him from some monster dogs, Robert decides to kill himself, but he's saved by another survivor played by Alice Braga and her maybe son, Ethan played by Charlie Tahan. There are two survivors who believe there's a human colony in Vermont, but before they can convince Robert to come with them, the monsters attack them, force them into their underground lab And let's see, they discover that the dark seeker that Neville had captured earlier in the movie and was experimenting on to find a cure, it worked. And so they have the cure, but the monsters have them trapped down there in the basement. Oh, no. In the end, Neville realizes that God has a plan for all of us. (laughs) This is where it falls apart for me. And he really does work in mysterious ways. So... There are no coincidences, and he sacrifices his life to protect Anna, Ethan, and the Cure. And it ends with Anna, Ethan, and the Cure arriving in Vermont, where the colony does exist. And the end. (laughs) And thank God, too, because if they showed up and those, you know, like, the doors (laughs) open and it's just like everyone's dead inside, that would have been a great... Because the first thing she does is hand them, you know, the blood sample that contains the Cure... I thought uh, I thought that was so funny how she hands it to just the first dude who welcomes her. It's like this super fragile glass vial that they've had to keep sharing. And she's like, here, catch. <laughs> One in the world. <laughs> um, I- I'm curious. Did you ever think that they weren't going to find the colony in that last shot when they're driving down the road? Was Did you think like, oh, no, they're just going to keep driving and there's going to be some uh, d- like uh, narrator? <laughs> I think it would have been an enter an interesting um, alternative ending, uh, you know, and I know there is already an alternative en- ending to this. I haven't seen it. I don't know if it's part of maybe a director's cut that's out on DVD somewhere, but I did read read about it. Um, yeah. So no, it's I mean, better. yeah, a movie like yeah, I know a movie like this where they have Will Smith essentially committing suicide, you know, sacrificing himself to save humanity, all that stuff. Like they have to follow that up with a very hopeful scene. Exactly. If you had freaking Will Smith, of all people, blow himself up in this heroic gesture, only for them to go like, oh no, it was all for nothing, I think audiences would have revolted. I don't think anyone would have appreciated that ending. And yet, the ending that was, people didn't like either. And everyone I've talked to agrees that it's a better ending. So the original ending has him blow up, and that's the one that we've all seen, or I mean the theatrical ending. But the original ending is much closer to the book, which is which gives more credence to the title. 
So in the original ending, the Darkseekers have them cornered in the basement, but instead of Neville realizing God has a plan because of the random glass shatter shape, the uh, alpha Darkseeker who's been chasing him the whole time and who scarred himself on purpose smears a butterfly on the glass, which matches the tattoo on the female that Neville captured, and he realizes they can still think and feel. And so that all comes together when he reflects on the tons of them that he's killed unfeelingly in the pursuit of a cure. And so he returns the female to the dark seekers and then they go free. And so in the original ending, Anna, Ethan and Neville all drive out of the city across the Washington bridge. And they never show us if the colony is there. And in that ending, the main character realizes that he has become a legend to the creatures Completely. I, I, com- I completely agree it would be a more effective ending. Um, it ties into the book so much. I mean, they're in that way, they're using it as, you know, the legend of, uh, you know, of the monster attacking you when in the book, that's who Neville becomes. You know, he's feared and it's sort of like, you know, whispered from, you know, the adult dark seekers to their children, like, oh, watch out for this guy because he's coming to kill us. Uh, where in the theatrical ending, it's I am legend, you know, because he sacrificed himself so heroically. For us humans, and that the Dark Seekers were just monsters, and God's, uh, it was like a Noah's flood, essentially, that God was trying to, you know, save what was left of humanity, the pure. And I don't even want, I don't even have to throw all of the religion stuff out of the window. You could even have left it with that ending. And then I could have made the argument that, oh yeah, he's a legend like Dracula or like, um, you know, Swamp Thing or or, (laughs) uh, Loch Ness Monster. But you could also say that he's a legend to them like Jesus Christ. And then you could still keep your stupid religious (laughs) allegories in it. But no, they decided to have him die, you know, his sacrifice that way is his Jesus uh, allegory, so that his, he, he died for our sins so that we could live on. Yeah, I think, and I sort of think it speaks a little bit to the way that monsters are portrayed now is much more one dimensional, they're purely bad, they're all evil. But if you actually look back in terms of like romantic literature, the way monsters were written about were super dynamic, where they had feelings, they had consciousness. You know, like Franken, like Frankenstein or Frankenstein's yes. monster. He was written as this, you know, like, you know, like this thing that was born hideous, but ha- he he learns multiple languages. He can move incredibly swiftly, um, and then watered down throughout the years. He's just become this, you know, mask of you know what kids put on at Halloween. Yeah, exactly. He's just like a walking zombie. Um, and so I think, yeah, I, I kind of miss, I miss the old monsters, uh, the complex ones. (laughs) I'm so glad you mentioned Frankenstein. I remember the first time I picked up Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and being just like astonished at what a poet, how eloquent the monster is, Adam. And just like, and then later in my life, seeing the, uh, Robert De Niro (laughs) Frankenstein, where he's more like that. And he's more like conversational. It's just. Yeah, this distillation of monsters to it, and it's funny. It feels like it's kind of having a snap back, where now once again we are very concerned with, wait, why are they evil? Why are they killing things? It's not enough that it's just like you know Michael Myers is a killer. We have to know why the ethos of it. So I'm curious, 
What do you think happened, uh, ignoring the original ending and just focusing on the movie that we have, what do you think happens at the end of this? They deliver the cure to a farmer. Then what happens? <laughs> Hopefully he finds whoever's in charge, <laughs> you know, the smartest man in town. I mean, it's so funny you say that because... <laughs> who knows who's in that colony, you know, just because there's a bunch of survivors doesn't mean there's somebody there or the equipment or, you know, like essentially the smartest man and the man who knew how to do something with it and had the tools to, you know, a lab, um, to actually, uh, you know, to actually work with it is now gone. He's blown himself up and everything that's going to be helpful and then just sends it off to this, you know, maybe place in Vermont. That's such a good point. Even when there were still people alive and dying, there was so much faith in this guy specifically that he was going to come up with the cure. And there's a bunch of throwaway lines in the Time Magazine cover of like, our savior, is he going to save us? And I mean, I would hope that, you know, they... They could use it. And I think, I mean, the intention to me was to turn all the dark seekers back into humans because otherwise, you know, there's this thought that if Will Smith's character, Neville, actually believes that everyone's dead, he has this thing where Anna comes in and she's like, we're going to this colony, come with us, there's hope, you know, and he, he's, everyone's dead, everyone that you've I ever known. That. It's a very effective, you know, because that's... I think there's like a terror in that for everyone, you know, nobody really wants to outlive all of their friends and family, anyone who you've ever known. Um, but if he really thought that, then it's what is he, who is he trying to save? Unless it's that he can turn all the dark seekers back, which I think was the intention. Is that what you got? I think so too. I think so. So yeah, if, you know, assuming that they get the cure to someone benevolent who isn't going to sell it or something, um, now is, let's assume that they could even like get it into the air. They're crop dusting dark seekers and now people are turning back. And I now have to live with like the few years that I was this animalistic monster person eating like dogs and stuff. And now I'm back in society, but they're also not the, the female dark seeker when she's cured, she doesn't look totally human anymore. So I'd have to imagine that there would be this splintering off of like, you know, normal people versus cured people and that being a whole thing. I know. I think they should have just started over at that point. <laughs> just humanity, um, everyone. Yeah. So now I want to move into what's going to take up most of this episode, which is screaming themies, where we talk about some of the bigger themes at play in this movie. And the first one specifically that jumps out to me is uh, man or science versus God. Um, so when Anna and Ethan arrive, they save Dr. Neville, uh, Will Smith, like a guardian angel. And then they tell him that there's a colony in Vermont that he doesn't believe exists, but they have faith that this place exists. And that's supposed to be like this key into the greater discussion of like humanity had faith in Dr. Neville to find a cure. And Dr. Neville has faith in his drive to find that cure. But Anna and Ethan introduced the question of whether or not his cure would have mattered without them and thus God. He's, she enters the scene and says, oh no, all of this was part of God's plan and all of your strife and all of the people that died and your wife and child exploding in a helicopter right in front of you was all part of God's plan. And I feel like that kind of echoes some of the real world conversations that people have with this. It's like, someone who hasn't experienced as much personal heartache and loss in their life 
would be more open to that idea of God's plan versus somebody who maybe had to watch their whole family die and would have their faith shaken by that. And, um, and a tough sell, I think, for this man who's been living alone for, what, three years, thinks everyone is dead and is, you know, and is trying not to be murdered or turned into a dark seeker every single night. And then suddenly this person shows up with her child, which of course is very like, I don't know, the Virgin Mary and she's coming and she has, and then, and she has the, the butterfly tattoo. Right. And that's why he kind of believes her because it's the whole butterfly thing that stems from his daughter. Um, but her Who God say, was also working through. I know, yeah, exactly. Through, through the use of butterflies, clearly. Uh, you know, but for Anna to say that, yeah, this is all God's will when he's still very much traumatized and grappling with the fact that everyone is dead. Um, I feel like the movie, I, watching it, felt insulted for him that she's coming in there like that. And I feel like that's what the movie is trying to say. I feel like the movie is throwing this question of, is human motivation, i.e. free will, uh, enough to overcome like the horrors of life? Or do we require divine intervention to reveal the paths that we then need to walk? Right. Or maybe it's, you know, the idea that just having something to believe in is enough to keep you going. And that it doesn't yeah. actually have to be, you know, reality. It doesn't have to be science. There doesn't have to be a cure. But as long as there's this, you know, place, fictional or otherwise, that our other people are there and you know it's kind of your nirvana you're chasing something always but in Neville's case it's the cure and and the idea that he can reverse it because there's a lot of responsibility that he puts on himself you know which is why he doesn't leave Manhattan which is why he doesn't get in the helicopter with his his wife and child he says you know like I can still fix this this is my site and he clearly still feels that uh later on which is why he's so dedicated and he was he's never going to yeah he was never going to go to vermont no he's carrying like the deaths of everyone in the world on his back and that guilt is destroying him i mean would you call that survivor's guilt because he you know obviously um the unnamed doctor uh she's uncredited um oh um yeah they gave her a name that i guess is a reference to a serial killer it's dr alice crippen played by emma thompson yeah, and I don't know what, yeah, I'm not sure what Crippen, was it a serial killer or a disease? Uh, oh, I'm not sure. Anyway, she's obviously, you know, she's the perpetrator behind this, and I'm not sure why it's Will Smith's responsibility now, other than the fact that he is the sole survivor and he has e- immunity, which, you know, to me points to heavy survivor's guilt. Yeah, I mean, I don't personally understand, I don't pretend to understand the hierarchy of the military, but... I don't know if a colonel necessarily has the same pedigree as like a virologist or whatever he is that he's doing, but he's a genius and also a commanding officer and can, you know, yell at people in their face um, like a man's man. But even ignoring the religious stuff, I'm curious, I couldn't decide to you, is this movie like anti-science in that the film's trying to say that our attempts to control nature in the form of the cure for cancer and then the virus cure and living with the dark seekers rather than succumbing to it all of those lead to our self uh manufactured demise and it isn't until we release our false sense of control my i'm saying the movie is saying and give into the universe or god's plan that things fall into place so is this movie anti-science despite spending half of its 
screen time having Will Smith play with beakers and stuff? I mean, I think it it definitely lends itself that way, uh, you know, specifically with the cure for, like, the cure for cancer, the thing that, you know, we're all afraid, the thing that lives with us, every single person, you know, has has touched cancer in some way. And that cure ended up, you know, doing the complete reverse and wiping everyone out. Um, yeah. But I, I, I do kind of wish, I feel like if it was made these days, it would have like I keep trying to make an environmental catastrophe connection, you know, because you do see like all the weeds coming up in New York City. You see the deer coming out, and you know, in our Sky COVID time, yeah, in our COVID times, people have have you know said the same thing. Like everyone's inside now, so nature is flourishing. But I honestly think it was it's probably a reach to say that. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's something that I thought too. Because watching it now versus two thousand seven, I'm definitely seeing those parallels where I think. It was a photo of like Dubai, like before quarantine and then after and the skies were just blue. I mean, it was like that in L.A., but yeah, that was the running gag is, oh, nature is coming back. Um, and that that's an interesting take on it. I like that because I, I'm more of I feel like the movie is trying to be anti-science, but I am definitely more for. Uh, a, a, a scientific natural lens on these things. I mean, assuming that they're is a god and that he has a plan i personally find it extremely presumptive that that plan has anything to do with us and humans like for for anna uh, to assume that the plan for all she knows could be for the dark seekers god's plan was for what everything leading up to this was so the dark seekers could be born and they're god's children you know and i mean it's also we know nothing else about her. She just says God. It's God's plan. But it's like, well, what God? Which God? Like, there are so many. And that I know too, she's, yeah. you know, I know she's, I'm sure, she, you know, the assumption is that she's talking about, you know, sort of like the the Christian God, you know, like the God that we all know. But it's also like, well, which, which one? There are so many. I'm curious. Do you think Ethan is her son or just a kid that she saved? No, I always assumed it was the son. Yeah. Okay. You? I don't know why. I was assumed it was a, a kid that she picked up and saved, and there was some extra element of that. And also, Anna and Ethan sounds a lot like Adam and Eden, but there's no Eve, and so I don't know. I don't know. I just wrote that down. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> no, that's fun. And I mean, there is a little bit of um, distance between them, but she's obviously also very like motherly and protective over him. You know, as soon as the uh, as soon as the the house fortress is broken, you know, she's running upstairs to him, but it's just, oh, I'm Anna, this is Ethan. You know, it wouldn't be like, this is my son, Ethan. Um, yeah. I think without the my son part, uh, you definitely could be right there. Um, it's just, so you mentioned the ending of the book. So the book actually has Dr. Neville willingly take a suicide pill in acknowledgement that I don't belong here anymore. The Dark Seekers are the earth's inheritors. And so I will become a legend. And so I, I prefer a message that, that says the universe does not revolve around us. It's this like um, argument against, uh, I don't know, but it's like ethnocentrism. It's these uh, anthropologists going out to other countries and prescribing, Oh, this country doesn't have streets. It's worse than ours. That's very ethnocentric. And so like, Nature will march on with or without us. And we just kind of have to step outside of ourselves and move out of the way. Humanity will end and that's okay is the message that the like book is trying to say. And I could totally see why executives would go, 
this isn't summer blockbuster. We got to have an explosion at the end. It's not a family fun time. <laughs> yeah. The last theme that I want to get into is uh, one of the bigger ones of isolation, grief, and depression. 90% of the population is Neville carries on his shoulders for, you know, justifiable reasons or not. He's carrying all of that. And so guilt for an entire planet for three years, let alone a day, is a lot to change somebody. And so the only thing that he has left of his family that, once again, you could make the argument that he feels responsible, he directly killed them, too, because of the helicopter he put them on in that moment, and, you know, the amount of time he waited to say goodbye and all of that. Uh, Just one second less. He's carrying all of that, and he puts it all into his routine, his, like, mannequins, and his dog. And God, that dog. Oh, I'm getting chills just thinking about it right now. Because I I remember being in the theaters when he refers to the dog over and over again as Sam. And is talking to it like it's a child or like a best friend or something. And then the wham line when it's hurt and he calls her Samantha. Ugh. And I, like, I was thinking about that because I don't know that I can even explain why that was so effective. I was going to ask you, I thought, why do I feel more when I, it's, it's a woman? Cause now it's, now it's a female dog and it's like, Oh no, now he really has to take care of it. I feel weird now. I was going to ask you. <laughs> so thank you. You know, Sam, like it's, it's his little buddy, you know, it's eat your vegetables and, and don't run into the dark place. And then suddenly I think the qualities that we typically, you know, uh, gender normatively assigned to, uh, you know, women or females are just makes it just makes it hurt more. You know, it's why they wouldn't allow women on battlefields back in the day, because men would sacrifice themselves to save women who clearly couldn't be saved, um, you know, and they just couldn't stand to see it. While if it was men, you know, they would just keep going. So I think there's just something about feminizing the dog where before it had no gen. I mean, you know, it was gendered as a, as a male, I think, because of Sam, but also sort of as nothing. But then I, you hear I, Samantha. I think you're hitting on uh, basically what I would like expand this one tiny part of this movie into like an essay for a class that I would teach on this because it's textbook. Uh, I, it It is the one thing that I can point to that is like still problematic and regressive in this movie um as far as like its its characters are concerned because when you call the dog sam it should be genderless but they know what they're doing they know exactly what they're doing this is the dog that is heroic and is a friend and is a best buddy and is someone you could get a beer with and so their name is sam and then the moment it's really interesting the moment that they choose to reveal. They literally change the dog's gender. The dog is a boy. Like, the way that they're treating it and the way everything, like, around it, I don't care if they don't say any pronouns or stuff, the the the, the movie is treating it like, like this, is, this is a man's dog. And then the moment that it's weak, it isn't when it's at its strongest that we reveal that it's a girl. It's at its weakest when a man needs to swoop in and save it that we change its gender. I, we're not revealing it. We rip away what it was and we replace its gender because now it needs to be the damsel in distress for Will Smith. And I find that so frustrating because it's still such a sad scene. Oh, completely. You know, I mean, it's very manipulative what they did, you know, right before 
right before we're about to feel a lot of feelings for this dog and their relationship, you know, you turn it into, into this sort of hurt female. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's, there's not much to say on that. I just wanted to make sure I pointed out because I feel like people could watch this today and totally fall prey to that without realizing what Hollywood is doing, you know? No, I'm glad you did because it was a moment for me too, but I could, like, I hadn't worked it through. Um, and it is, it's just, just for literally one word and it's just a very regular name. Uh, suddenly it changes something in your brain about how you're perceiving the story and their relationship and, and who this, you know, the other main character is. Yeah. And what is lost by knowing she's a girl right from the start, except the wham line, like that big argument, which the fact that you believe that the fact that you, the executive who thinks this scene should still exist, believes that that has a wham moment is the problem. That should not be a wham moment. We should have just known that she was a girl right from the start. Um, but I do love his like, I mean, once Sam, once, once Sam's gone, he's broken. And we see just like little moments of him going back to his routine and like telling the mannequin, I promised my friend I would say hello. Please say hello to me. Uh, Will Smith is like at full 10 when he's, when he's the long shot, when he's holding on to Sam and they just linger on him for that long. Like that, that's some of the stuff. I still think of that scene. I still think of that moment as like, well, what are some of those saddest things that if I had to make myself cry, what would I think about? And it's definitely that one. Jeez. I mean, you know, not, and I promise I haven't like pre-thought this, but just this conversation is leading to like the other female characters in the film. You know, the like the first one we see is obviously the the woman who creates the cure for cancer and eventually the, you know, the thing that changes the world. And then his wife, the female dark seeker, and then Anna. And I think, and then the mannequin, you know, so, I mean. Are you getting to that he has to save all of them? that even the intelligent scientist at the beginning needed to be saved by him and his wife needed to be saved by him and his daughter and Anna needed to be saved by him. And none of the women have agency in this movie. <laughs> yes. That kind of sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> A little bit. Thank you. <laughs> it, yeah. So, I, I am legend. Uh, very entertaining film. Not the greatest friend to to females now it's a will smith it's it's will smith if you're going there to to see anything else you've come to the wrong movie yeah it's this a will is, smith vehicle yeah exactly so we've come to uh the part where we rate our movies on a scale of one to five thumbs one being the worst and five being the best jen how many thumbs are you going to award i am legend can i give a half thumb Sure. Are you only going to give it a half thumb? No, I'm going to give it three and a half thumbs. Oh, okay. (laughs) Because I think I really, I enjoy this movie. It might not be something that I would put on purposefully, but, you know, thinking back to the days of falling asleep on your couch, watching something on TV, and then waking up and it's a different movie, and you're like, oh, okay, now I'm just watching Mr. Holland's Opus. You know, that's a good movie. Like, I would never put that on, but I'll watch it if it pops up in front of me. I feel like I Am Legend's the same thing. Like, I'd be like, oh, cool. I'm going to watch this now. So that's my three and a half. I know what you mean. Like I said at the beginning, it's still, I don't remember if it was on mic or not, but it still holds up that when I put the movie on and it's that first opening shot of an empty New York and panning over all of the streets and then you see his car run in and he's got his, like, he's hunting the deer. It's, It's a little, like, 
action. Oh yeah, here we go. Like bad boys, but it still feels purposeful. Like I haven't seen something do anything quite like it since. Like I can't point to another one. I, I can point to ones before it, but not after it. So it still kind of has that special place in my heart of that one really uh, action-packed thriller with scary moments and that horrible scene where Will Smith strangles a dog. <laughs> That's how I'll always remember it. <laughs> it's still, I feel like it remains very accessible. You know, it's an accessible movie to watch. Yeah. And I was hoping that there would be more parallels to, I want to be respectful to the people who have died, um, but to like COVID and stuff. But thankfully there, there weren't that many. It kind of takes place in a um, God, let's hope we never get there future. Absolutely. Although the images of, you know, sort of the hazmat suits and the masks and the temperature checks where uh, originally Will Smith's wife fails and then he says, scan her again. And then, you know, stand down and there's this whole scene. But it was very um, too familiar for right now because yeah. we're not used to seeing masks in movies. I totally forgot. You're right. That moment, because it's a crowd of people who are all afraid of a, of a virus and only some of them are wearing masks. There's so few of them. And you can watch scenes from movies like last year, crowd shots, and you go, wait, why aren't they wearing masks? And you have to remind yourself. Yeah, it's like March 2020. In, in <laughs> Um, so then we typically award our thumbs and a half to either people who are involved in the movie, like cast and crew, or even characters. So uh, who are you going to award your thumbs to? Uh, they all go to the dog. Okay. <laughs> you stole my idea. <laughs> well, I have to give this movie three thumbs. Um, I'm not going to give it three and a half, um, just because... Honestly, the ending and the third act in general deflate the whole thing. And it's a real shame because if you stopped it um, when he attempts suicide and he gets rescued in the bright light and you just whirled the credits from there, it would be a better movie. But even if you kept the original ending, it would be a better movie. Um, but I think it's a fun, consistent like examination of of our need for interaction and like the horrors of social isolation, like let alone just like being the last man on earth, but also having to endure God, that first shot where he's just in the tub at night and you hear them outside and you don't know what they are yet. Super scary. And that still works. So even though it's bogged down by a bizarre ending and a little too heavily in the divine intervention thing, I'm still going to give it three thumbs. And so instead of giving all three of mine to the dog, <laughs> I think I'll give one to Will Smith because he carries the whole movie on his shoulders. Um, I'm going to give one to a Alice Braga, the one who played the actor who played Anna, because even though she's given like a little more than nothing to do in the movie, she holds her own against Will Smith in some of those scenes. And he is, he, like I said, he's at like a full 11. Yeah. And, and he's she's an imposing figure. He's huge and she's tiny. Yeah. And she's doing a great job. She'd never. Even though he's screaming in her face, I never feel like she's lost the power in the conversation. And whether or not, you know, it's because of her religion or whatever, the actor does a good job portraying that. So I want to give her I want to give her a thumb. And then I'll give a thumb to Samantha. <laughs> so she's got good. The dog got four and a half thumbs. Seriously. And I don't know if it was just one dog, because you know, sometimes they'll use like multiple animals. It was three dogs. I believe okay. it was three, yep. They did a great job, all three of them, and their handlers. So well done. 
And that's I Am Legend. So, Jen, really quickly, if people wanted to uh, find you and Little Monster Pictures online, where would they do that? Uh, Instagram is the best place. Uh, our Little Monster handle is at Little Monster Pictures on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I am at Jenny Burt. That's J-E-N-N-N-Y-B-E-R-T. Uh, and Little Monster Pictures is also on Facebook. Awesome. We'll have all of those links in the episode description. But that's it for us on the Gory Days. Jen, thank you so much for joining us and bringing I Am Legend back into my world. I loved this movie. Me too. It was a great rewatch. I'm um, so happy I could do it for this. Yeah, good choice. And uh, honestly, I'd love to follow up with Off Limits. And when, when that gets done, I'd love to have you back on to talk about that and hopefully boost its signal. It sounds perfect for the show. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, until then, uh, Kyle Leone here, your host for a week, another week. Tune in next week where I'll have another guest. And I can't remember what movie we're doing right now. But until next time, stay scary out there. Have a glory day.